0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, if you like to think of it this way, today's podcast is being brought to you by Coratum, Corey H., an anonymous Bitcoin donor, and John P., all of whom who have made donations to the salon in the past week to help pay some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. And I thank you all very much. Also, I should say that I'm a little behind in sending out personal thank you emails to our donors this month. The fact is that besides being somewhat lazy and also not being a very big fan of email, <laughs> well, it's been too hot until today for me to even turn my computer on for a while. This little room that I call the salon gets quite warm even without my big computer running, and, well, so the machine and I just justify taking a few days off whenever there's a heat wave, uh, thus no emails from me lately. Of course, uh, that doesn't justify the fact that I'm also about six weeks behind in responding to some of the emails that have been coming in through the comments section of our website. But please don't give up on me. Uh, I have the best of intentions to answer those as well. And hopefully I'll get that done before the end of this month. For what it's worth, however, uh, I do read them as they come in. It's uh, it's just that when an email comes in with a question that's going to take a while for me to answer, well, then it becomes kind of a roadblock that stops me from answering the next one and the next one and so forth. So, uh, well, you see what you have to deal with here. I guess the next thing, I'll be outside uh, yelling at kids to get off my lawn. <laughs> I hope you know that's a joke. So, uh, getting on with today's program... I'm really happy to be able to pass along this talk by Michael Garfield. It was given at the recent MOGFest that was held in North Carolina. Now, the last time that we heard from Michael uh, here in the salon was when he and my friend Matt Palomary had their pre-end-of-the-world conversation. uh, Well, it was back a week or so before the world was supposed to end in December of 2012. Happily, uh, we're still here, and uh, now we're able to get to know Michael a little better as well. Now, if you don't know about Bob Mogg, in whose memory the MogFest is held, well, you simply haven't been paying very close attention, because as the creator of the Mog Synthesizer, he is, uh, well, he's considered to be the father of electronic music, and MogFest is the annual event that honors his remarkable vision and his amazing musical inventions that change the course of music. And uh, it was at this festival that celebrates the synthesis of art, music, and technology that Michael Garfield gave the presentation that we're about to listen to, the full title of which is Techno-Shamanism, A Very Psychedelic Century.
1: Thank you, everyone, for coming out here for Michael Garfield's talk. My name is Amos Gaines, and I'm a designer and engineer with Moog Music, and uh, I just wanted to come out and briefly give a few introductory words. Uh, Michael is such a dynamic thinker that I'm not going to attempt to preview uh, the direction that he's going to take us in, but I did want to talk for just a moment about techno-shamanism and what that means to me and how that connects to Moog music and Moogfest because there is a very real connection there. Uh, My background Outside of moog uh, with techno shamanism is about fifteen years in the psychedelic trance music subculture, which is a global phenomenon uh, that is very keyed into uh, a techno shamanistic approach to uh, to dance and music and ritual and what techno shamanism is to me is the thought that um, you know the shamanic experience is the numinous and the deeply personal and the trans-rational and the things that cannot be quantified scientifically that are an intense and real part of the human experience in the cosmos. And, um, you know, just that, that is a, you know, half of the duality of the human experience. Uh, I'm reminded of Isaac Newton, who when he wasn't laying the foundations of modern physics was a magician through and through. And neither of those aspects compromised the other, rather they completed parts of a whole. And in this modern era, we've very much gone with the Newtonian cerebral um, modality of interpreting reality to the extent that a lot of times anything that can't be quantified and rationalized is viewed as deviant, crazy, unfounded, not real. And it's very important for the health of the human species to recognize that the numinous and the profound is every bit a part of the reality that we embody. And, you know, neither should we, we should neither lose sight of that, nor should we lose sight of the empirical reality that lets us cure diseases and go to space. You know, we have to have all of these things. And so techno-shamanism is the understanding that as the technology of our intellect has advanced, it is still wedded to the numinous and the profound and that we can use that technology to help enhance the totality of human experience, the shamanic aspect of human experience, the infinite aspect of human experience can be dialed in with this amazing new technology that we have if we use it with inspiration. And so the connection there with Moog and Moogfest is that that is very much what Moogfest is helping to catalyze. That's part of the intention underneath it. And at Moog Music, we don't just make tools for playing tunes. We make instruments that are intended and designed to help create rich and beautiful, authentic human experiences. That's you know the tone of these instruments resonates at a soul level. And I don't think that's hyperbole. That's what we're going for. And to the extent that we succeed, that's uh, it's intentional. And uh, so that's where we're coming from with our contribution to technological culture is to help create a more profound and real human experience. And so uh, with that as the stage that we're setting, I'm going to turn it over to Michael Garfield. Thank you very much. <laughs>
2: Well, that says it all, and I think we can spend the next hour in meditation. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, That was actually a very beautiful intro, and it's awesome. It's awesome to, uh, being from Austin, Texas, uh, I have to to step lightly here, because what I want to do is express my appreciation for being in, uh, in, invited to participate in a community of like minds and hearts in this sense, especially in contrast to some of the other large music and technology festivals uh, in Austin that seem to uh, have been swept under by the, the riptide of technocratic systems management philosophy that sprung out of this dissociated... Uh, you know, we talk about Newtonian, but really it is just that, like, left-brain Newton that doesn't get into the alchemy or the astrology or any of that, you know, that doesn't attempt to uh, put it back together with that right-brain holism. Uh, so it's awesome to be here, and I also want to thank uh, before a... or as, a, as a, a a step along the path of ever-deepening invocations that this talk seems like it will be, the uh, the spirit of Bruce Damer who uh, was a, a friend of Terence McKenna's, and I think for that reason, among others, namely that he's, a, he's been a NASA consultant on asteroid mining and is currently involved in uh, some very exciting origins of life research. Uh, he was initially tapped to give this talk, and I want to thank Bruce for saying, why don't you let this kid do it instead? Um, I'm too busy with official science stuff, and I'm pretty sure he's unemployed. So thanks, Bruce. And, um, and then lastly, I have been on a, a complete binge of the work of uh, former MIT historian William Irwin Thompson. I don't know if any of you are familiar with him, but he, he is uh, sort of, I won't say the man behind the curtain, but he has been a profoundly influential figure in the last... Sixty years of Western thought and planetary thought his, uh, his Lindisfarne Association was a uh, for 40 years was the hub or one of several hubs for envisioning the planetary culture and a planetary Renaissance and what that means, you know, the bridging of Eastern and Western thought of modern and pre-modern thought of artists and scientists and it is uh, absolutely on his shoulders that I stand here, not only in, in the, the context of the ideas that I, I hope to present, but also in terms of the means or the style by which he presented them. So I want to start and end with Bill Thompson quotes here for you guys. And I think that that will appropriately bracket the um, whatever goes in the middle of that sandwich. He says, this is evil in world order, 1976 very prophetic volume, I highly recommend it. He says, to understand contemporary culture, you have to be willing to move beyond intellectual definitions and academic disciplines. You have to be willing to throw your net out widely and be willing to take in science, politics, and art, and science fiction, the occult, and pornography. To catch a sense of the whole. in pattern recognition, you have to leap across the synapse and follow the rapid movement of informational bits. You treat in a paragraph what you know could take up a whole academic monograph, but jugglers are too restless for that. The object of the game is to grasp the object quickly and then give it up in a flash to the brighter air. Yeah. Ooh. So actually, um, Lorna Rose Simpson was the, the woman that I spoke to about coming out here. And she said... We already have this in mind. We want to we want to do a talk on techno shamanism. It's one of these things. And I said, you know, I can't really tell from where I'm standing um, if you guys are aware of how problematic that is. It's uh, you know, <laughs> when we're getting into this this issue of uh, you know, seeing someone's culture from afar and then saying, hey, I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that, and I'm gonna I'm going to use it for my own purposes and I'm going to use it to inflate my sense of importance in a terrifying and disempowering society. Um, and I learned to do this from that, that environment. And there's, so there's a lot of, in, in the circles where I run, there's a lot of uh, frustration with the word shaman to start with and the way that it has come to mean not only, Uh, practitioners of various tribal medicine traditions uh, that do not call themselves shamans, but also the work of various uh, heads on sticks walking around thinking that they're tampering with reality every time they smoke a bowl of DMT. And, you know, putting that particular philosophical question aside, uh, we are in this... We're like thoroughly at cruising altitude now with remix culture. And so there's a certain amount of like self-forgiveness I think is required for me to even get up here and and like talk about techno-shamanism and pretend like, you know, I am uh, an initiate or, you know, a medicine person. But one of the characteristics of the planetary culture that is emerging now through the decay of industrial and post-industrial civilization is... The Decay and the decentralization of the priesthood in whatever sense that arise that that we're moving out of uh, a like a hierarchical structure of learning and into a system that balances uh, natural hierarchies with peer-to-peer exchange that we're sort of moving from this this vertical descent of, of heritable culture and we're moving into kind of a more bacterial model where things are being exchanged rapidly and laterally. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's kind of easy to imagine how as we get more and more connected with one another that more and more of what we identify as the self is subject to this, this boiling uh, metamorphic exchange you know, across, uh, you know, peer boundaries. So in that sense, all of us are... Uh, somewhat more responsible for the task of teaching one another and healing one another insofar as one of the main walls that's coming down, like the Iron Curtain, I think, of our generation is the wall between the self and our environment, between the mind and the body, between uh, what we call culture or civilization and nature. These, These very recent and kind of problematic distinctions that were only you know, a couple hundred years old. These are, not the, these are not the distinctions that Newton was working with. You know, when, every, when the work of natural philosophy was to understand culture as a microcosm of a larger process and to understand individual purpose as an expression of cosmic purpose. But Bruce, what Bruce said to me was, uh, Michael, don't just rant at these people. He said, tell them a story. So, the story that I want to tell you is about electricity because I feel that in understanding what it would mean to be a techno shaman, you know, and, and specifically uh, the, the subtitle of this talk was <laughs> A Very Psychedelic Century um, because I think that there's, in the same way that we can derive individual meaning from an understanding of the whole. Uh, we can transpose uh, certain personal mythic cycles onto our collective initiation into a pl- our, this planetary renaissance and uh, and understand what we're going through now as a species and as a planet through the lens or the model of the psychedelic experience. And like specifically the psychedelic experience as a... Uh, you know, a uh, synonym or or sister species to the near-death experience, in the way that that uh, Tim Leary and Richard Alpert originally articulated it, comparing an acid trip to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So the story the story is like this, basically. Uh, we our earliest religion, and in some sense, every subsequent expression of human religion is anchored in electricity. And uh, if you want a really thorough exposition of this, you can turn to Eric Davis and his book, Technosis, uh, Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Age of Information, which holds up admirably after 20 years almost now. But, you know, you start by thinking about awe, like the kind of awe that I experienced watching Daniel Lanois last night. And... Or the kind of awe that that is created by the architecture of a building like the the Carolina Theater or a, a cathedral of any you know under any name, and that awe is the the awe of the tourist. You know the tourist looks up. There's a relationship in the body between where our head where we're actually looking and the way that our brains estimate scale. You know something the same object in our field of vision appears much larger if we see it transposed against the sky versus on the ground and So, you know for that reason as well as for the reason that my roommate's dog runs under the table every time there's a storm uh, It's easy to understand why thunder and lightning was Such a profound source of awe and such a profound portal into the mystery of our situation on this planet from the very beginning. And you know, that the earliest the earliest god uh, that we can point to, I mean, the earliest named god was a dragon. The, the you know Tiamat was the, the dragon of chaos. Of before we divided our world into sky and sea, it was just earth and chaos, and that this was the uh, this this the dreamless slumbering beast that ruled over these terrains. And then, at some point, you know, we we cut ourselves off from that. The Babylonians sent their hero god Marduk over to, you know, slay Tiamat and establish civilization. Uh, and since then, for the last several thousand years, we've uh, we've watched sort of harmonics or variations on this theme. That it's the the symphony of our relationship to the other is getting more and more complex. And uh, you can see this this dragon sort of rear its head back up. Um, I'm going to s- skip most of human history because it's irrelevant. <laughs> In the 19th century, there's a, there's a film, Proteus, about the work of scientific illustrator Ernst Haeckel, who was charged with illustrating all of the, the creatures that were uh, dredged up from the bottom of the ocean by the HMS Challenger expedition. And that expedition existed, that it occurred, because in our attempts to lay a transatlantic telegraph cable between London and New York in order to transmit stock prices, we failed. We snapped the cable twice, and when we pulled it back up, we discovered that the cable was crusted with all of these things that we did not believe could exist, because at the time, it was understood, or it was theorized, that the bottom of the ocean was too cold to sustain life, and that it was a sort of frozen wasteland, which, you know, if you look at it, the kind of like ancient relationship that we have between the land and the chaos, you know, between uh, human society at eye level and the uh, the sort of unconscious beneath us underground and the, the uh, sort of transpersonal unconscious above us in the stars that... The, the, the bottom of the sea has always represented uh, in the human mind uh, a col- you know our collective unconscious and there 's something really poetic and beautiful about the fact that it was commerce it was this this uh, desire this depending on whether you want to be a cynic or not it was either uh, you know this sort of the necessity of business and the sort of military industrial survival drive thing, you know, that led to ARPANET and stuff like that. Uh, Or it was our desire to connect with one another, you know, that that we keep watching the video resolution climb and climb and climb because we get acclimated to a certain degree of intimacy and we want more, you know, because because we are conceptually separated from one another, even if we are not separated in truth. And so, the uh the self that identifies its that that recognizes itself as separate is constantly trying to reclaim its unity through you know various rearrangements of the physical world. And so you get this thing where where we you start to see how uh the telecommunications and the electricity that flows through that system, the the same the same telegraph uh Messages that led to cybernetics that led to an understanding that that information is a difference that makes a difference that that uh, that there 's this relationship between if you want to talk about like the mouth of the dragon you know commerce and and consumption and the heart of the dragon, which is this this desire to this you know eros like the the erotic urge the desire to weave into that that ultimate unity and that there is a there's that's i point to that specific example that the transatlantic cable because it seems like that's the moment that we can really say that was the inflection point or the turning point where the boundary that we had made for ourselves between the city and the wilderness started to digest in the belly of this dragon which uh, we can now recognize as the uh, you know the, the technological infrastructure that surrounds us in this building and almost everywhere that we go as modern people. Um, I've been working on, on unsuccessfully for the last three years on an essay entitled "Google Is the Dragon," in which uh, you know owing to the work of of uh, Penn State information scientist Richard Doyle, who who makes the point that the the surveillance infrastructure that we have created is uh, a property of it's 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 a function of thermodynamics in a sense that like every camera suggests a new blind spot, and so every camera implies another camera, and in that sense it's a it's a self-reproducing re- re- organism with its own agency, and that we we are uh, you know agents. Of that agency and that it would be in that sense a mistake uh, in the way that that we we imagine this throughout the the whole of Christendom to see the uh, the angelic and the reptilian as in in contest with one another when in a sense they're actually opposing muscle sets within the same limb you know or opposing poles of the same magnet that one of the, the predominant features of, of post-modernity is that we recognize that, every, that everything that we define ourselves against is tucked within that definition in such a way that, we, that, that the more that we try to extract ourselves from the thing that we avoid, from the thing that we hate, the more it, it begins to manifest uh, unconsciously because we're no longer able to approve of it in a way that gives us any any uh, I won't say control because that's nonsense, but like you know that gives us the 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 opportunity for a dance with this this hidden part of ourselves. So there's you know you see uh, you know to kind of like summarize there. You've got the pre-modern dragon you know which is the the mystery of this electrical chaos of the skies and and the oceans and then we we bury that for a few thousand years at least in some cultures and in in without even realizing that we're trying to dig this dinosaur back up that we do so and then find that we've actually been in the belly of this leviathan the whole time and that that technology now surrounds our culture, that we 're no longer holding the stone tool in our hands that the, the stone tool has has grown like vertegris over all of nature, and Amazon has been replaced by amazon and here we are inside the um, probably like the fourth or fifth stomach of this thing and and as this this process of connection continues all of the boundaries that we that we thought we knew have been interrogated and, and challenged and and so we're coming to a uh, a moment where the this is this is where the the psychedelic experience part of it comes in because let's see if we can there we go <laughs> this is this is uh my friends in Austin made this music visualizer called synesthesia um, i just thought it would be fun to put it on there there might be you might you might slip into uh, kind of a holistic pattern detection mind watching this and that's kind of the the hope that something emerges out of the intersection of the figure the speaking figure and the silent ground of this presentation as I'm discussing the uh, the dissolution of the figure of the modern self into the the ground of, of our collective experience and that so this is, this is the template that was left for us by that first wave of, of uh, psychedelic or techno-shamanic visionaries, people like Bob Moog, who saw electrical devices as a way of miniaturizing industry, bringing technology back into the human scale and, and back within the envelope of culture. And so what I, you know what I see right now is that uh, this 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 uh, template of ego dissolution in uh, when you actually witness what 's going on very, the recent research on psychedelics and, and uh, the brain show that when somebody takes psilocybin mushrooms, for example um, that the the ordinary partitions between different modules of the brain relax and stop inhibiting one another, and something that people have journalists have been calling an uh, an internet of the brain emerges where suddenly all these new connections are thrown up and for anyone who 's ever experienced uh group telepathy in a psychedelic state uh, you you 'll identify that this is something that 's occurring not just within people but f- but between people and so this seems like a very useful uh, touchstone. For understanding what we have to look forward to over the next hundred years or so as this uh this embryogenesis of a planetary self wraps you know rolls forward to completion so there's you know so you get into this issue of like well well how did how did the ancient world manage these experiences you know uh because in the sixties we didn't have elders we didn't we just sort of like found the you know the we br- like broke into our parents music room and started playing with all their sh- stuff you know without any guidance or instruction but but uh, as the the severity of the situation amplifies as as we we run up into the the wall against which operating in a a modern mindset where the self is posed against a world that is dangerous and must be controlled uh, we get we're getting to a point you know where it's it's no news to anyone here that we're about to drive this off of a cliff and so what are we or we may already be in freefall and so what what is the evolutionary adaptation to this situation uh, what what seems to be going on is that the that now that we have uh you know the the the, the uh, acid trip of the internet, you know those two things having been created almost more or less simultaneously in uh the late thirties that you get this uh the internal explosion of the psychedelic experience and the external explosion of the atom bomb, which represents sort of the fruiting body of that mycelial web of of uh you know uh, Military, industrial research and design people that created uh, cyberculture and, and as, as a matter of consequence, created counterculture and in some sense are the the progenitors the, the grandparents of culturally of everyone in this room, like we are you know children of the Manhattan Project, in the sense that we recognize for the first time with the bomb that there is no over there anymore because of the radioactive fallout. And because of the the uh, the co-implication, the accomplice action of of uh, different states that are ecologically and economically in bed with one another, like you know, we can pretend for the sake of sensationalist news that you know it's the United States versus China or versus Russia. But everything is so connected to everything else now that you can't you can't pull one of those cards out without the whole thing falling. And it was it was the bomb that taught some people that, and it was the acid trip that taught some people that. And uh, you know, and and just as a point, a point of passing, I think it's no coincidence that um, you know you talk about the electric Kool Aid acid test, you know. Which you know tapping into this notion of the Promethean flame of the the thunderbolt that allows uh an inspiration to spread through you know from the uh celestial macrocosm and like down into these receptive individuals and then between us, so at any rate, these ancient ancient cultures pre-modern cultures. Um, they had a way of, of managing these experiences and, uh, you know, a, a very old and wise system in place for how to open a window into these realms, the, the same, in some sense, the same realms that we're recapitulating with our our portals, you know, as we astrally project to one another um, by f- f- ever greater fraction and, uh, and and that was the the shaman you know or whatever they're called you know the curanderos, and these people who uh, took one for the team and recognized that their position within the social molecule was to act as a, as a mediator not as not as a, a priest not as someone with exclusive access to this knowledge but someone who is willing to serve an intelligence greater than their own for the benefit of their community. And and you start to see this kind of language emerging in some of the early cyberneticists, uh, namely Gregory Bateson, who became convinced through, uh, even though he started out in the OSS in the Korean War, working on using information science to create divisions in people, he had like a moral awakening and decided that that what he actually needed to do was uh, convince people that because thought appears in the interaction between an organism and its environment, because the unit of selection, and, and this is this was my my area of study in school, evolutionary ecology, that the the people were arguing you know for decades over where is the unit of selection is it the org- is it the individual organism or is it the group well that's a that's an optical illusion you know that it's everything is operating on everything else at the same time and it's only by drawing a boundary around it for the sake of trying to create a controlled experiment that we create these, these artificial categorical distinctions. So, you know, Bateson saw his, his classic example is a blind man with a cane feeling around, you know, and he said, well, the, the blind man feels a truck passing outside the street through the cane. And it's like, well, where does, where does the mind of that man stop? It certainly doesn't stop at the end of his hand because the cane has become a sensory extension of his hand. But the ground has become a sensory extension of the cane. The cane is merely amplifying the this this other signal, and that there's that when you actually look into it and and uh, Zen master Genpo Roshi in Salt Lake City talks about this. he talks about big mind and like where where does big mind stop? Gregory Bateson called this the mind at large, and he said that that because thought emerges. In this relationship that that we are in some sense that we're there's there's an entire uh, field of philosophy called the material philosophy uh, where they study the the agency of environments and uh, landscapes and substances you know why is it that everyone in the ancient world was obsessed with rocks right well it's because they because they were animists because for them the you know Spirit was not some hard problem that had to be solved. Spirit was the living and imminent reality of everything. And it is precisely this animism that Bateson and that uh, Bill Thompson and so many other very sophisticated scientific thinkers are proposing is the direction that we have to move as a society in order to not only reclaim our dignity as human beings from the maws of this commercial Uh, Monstrosity, but but also as you know, a humble scientific reckoning with something bigger than ourselves. It's a Copernican turn, you know. Any any kind of recent research, uh, I'm sure a lot of you guys we were talking about this morning, uh, some friends and I, about the uh, the kind of more popular theory that we're living in a simulated universe. And that there's some there's like evidence at the subatomic level. There's like a granularity to the cosmos that suggests that it's being computed. And if and if that's the case, we're not we're not the first universe. And like we have to go through this ah oh, bummer in the same way that we that 500 years ago people were reckoning with the fact that that the sun does not revolve around the earth. And in a, in a sense, it's this humility which which uh, Kevin Kelly has. Has said that you know science is as we answer questions, we discover exponentially more questions. So we're finally at that point where we are back to recognizing that this the, the process of scientific inquiry, whether that process is applied to quantitative data in the empirical, external material domain or qualitative data in the like phenomenological and psychological domain, that. That inquiry is not in service of some adolescent fantasy of total control, but is in service of the ever deepening humility of our relationship to the cosmic mystery that we are. And so, you know, this for Bateson, this this meant the participation in what he called hyphenated mind at large. And our efforts to connect electrically and photonically to one another are an attempt to reinvent the wheel essentially to to uh, rebuild this thing that that actually re- lies that we're we 're embedded in that 's the water in which we 're swimming that 's invisible to us and so We've spent the last several thousand years going about this, the, the, the diligent task of reinventing the wheel, basically. Um, but now we're at that point where it's sort of becoming obvious, and we're seeing, on the one hand, uh, this the the dawning of the age of the Internet of Things. You know that that our toasters are like talking to our Security systems and our security systems are talking to our doctors, and our doctors are machines in the same way that computers replaced a room full of women sitting at at, at a table and so that we've got we've got all of these essentially quickened chips you know these these sophisticated crystals and quasi crystals that we have you know we've we 've served the rocks in almost like a kind of a theosophical, mystical Rudolf Steiner kind of way of, of exalting and ennobling the mineral world. You know, we're serving as, the, uh, as the, the, the enzyme through which the metabolic transformation of the sleeping stones to the androids ha, you know, is being executed. And we are those things. You know, so in a, in a very real sense, we are just waking up. We're graduating to our participation in that alchemical act of creation. And so, like as we're doing this, though, it requires that we, uh, you know, we've got to we've got to claim this creative power. And in order to claim this creative power, we have to see ourselves as not other than the creative power of the the cosmos as a whole. And so in order to do – in order to break down the, the wall between the ego and and everything, you know, you end up in this, like – a lot of people end up in this, you know, very familiar kind of like acid burnout type situation where we simply – you know, it's the, uh, the Humphrey Osmond – you know, the term psychedelic, you know, to – is uh, to fathom hell or soar angelic, just take a pinch of psychedelic, you know, in his, in his message to Aldous Huxley. And it's like this notion that, that by opening the, ba- the trap door to the basement of our own minds where we have repressed all of the powerful and mysterious stuff that we considered not us. I mean, it's been like fermenting down there, for a few thousand years new things have grown and um, you know it's in, in the same way you like I hate to t- say this but like it's in a you know the work of a healer requires a bit of uh you know you got to keep your medical squeamishness in check it is like lancing a boil or or the uh you know the the purgation of participating in an ayahuasca ritual like you have we have to deal with this shadow material as a as a collective in order to survive this transformation and That's where again, you know, we get we, we, we Turn back to the work of previous generations in the 20th century specifically the work of people like Stanislav Grof who pioneered the field of LSD psychotherapy because it's only by Recognizing entering into conversation with and then reclaiming as self all of this Unconscious content that we're able to move forward as as initiated wizards You know that we, we it is a it's an elemental process of recognizing the ways That each of us is essentially a node between intersecting waves coming from every directions in our environment We are something that the landscape is saying that the the entirety of human history can be understood as a thought expressed by the geosphere and in that sense what we're talking when we talk about building the noosphere you know that the internet we're falsely uh, conflating the the systems that we're making in order to sort of take this this gambit at reproducing the, our our original unity our intuitive and like you know our, our the memory that we have of this unity that uh again we're just we're it's like you know when you zoom in on the mandelbrot set and there it is again you know at a million degrees magnification you know that we are it's we're not actually doing anything new here but it is it is new and it is an opportunity for novelty in the sense that every moment is an opportunity for novelty but i okay so i do want to i met a guy this morning that is actually a perfect example of this this guy john keston He's giving a uh, he gave a talk on audiovisual scores and is giving a talk on sonification, and he's an artist that that improvises to environments. He just sits with like a musical sculpture, like listens to the songs of a of you know a creek or of a railway, you know, because ultimately the railway is a natural phenomenon like a beaver dam, right? Like we can all accept that there's no Qualitative difference between the activity of of human hands and non-human hands, except as a matter of degree. And so he sits there, and he, you know, he's he is actually, uh, you know, listening to the the voice of what I still can't seem to shake the habit of calling the natural world. And he's entering into a conversation with it. And so was the guy that was driving us. From the hotel the other day, it turned out to be the the head of some music academy here, and says so he goes out on his back porch with the keyboard, and he he does duets with the birds, and he'll give them a little line, and they'll repeat it, and then he'll he'll play the variations on it, and I think that you know this this as a model for the 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 kind of sense of place and being, uh, the kind of meaning that we make for ourselves in our lives. In this age that's growing up around us is uh, coming up. You know, so you got like uh, Android Jones, the visual artist, who does all digital work, but he he says he 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 defines himself as an electro-mineralist, meaning that he's he's again he's helping this thing come up. So so you know the Internet of Things and the we're we're witnessing this like furby move to our environments becoming more conversational you know amazon echo you know you, you talk to your devices now you know and they talk back and they're getting better like i got my girlfriend's text message in a rental car a couple of weeks ago and it was like i miss you you know but eventually it'll sound like her you know <laughs> and uh and you know and that is sort of the, the bastardized version of what you know some of these post-industrial or meta-industrial cultures that have been springing up over the world in the last 50 100 years or so like findhorn um, or like uh, to some degree like arcosanti and uh, synergia ranch in the southwest both of those that these these are, are places where we recognize that the way forward is animism is acknowledging that the world is, is even without us, you know, installing natural language, artificial intelligence, conversational interfaces, even without installing, you know, mind-reading, Kurzweil brain chips, is the, the world is already speaking. It's already responsive. And, you know, the more that we recognize our own bodies as the you know the confluence of these uh, you know as as quickened dirt you know as uh, in the in this bruce damer's sense really you know very much back to that the new model of the origin of life is very much back to that original model of you know lightning striking a shallow pond if we are going to humanize a technology that now contains thermonuclear warfare ecological destruction and such subtler destructions as psychosurgery, electrical stimulation of the brain, aversive therapy, and behavioral modification. We will need more than the liberal humanism expressed in the implicit system of values of the behavioral sciences and the traditional humanities. This is the, the religion of Silicon Valley. You know, gamifying things, neuromarketing, you know, using the, re- ner- the research of neurotheology to stimulate religious experiences in people so that they like to go to work more often. You know. The worldview of the liberal intellectual is a Marxist Freudian mapping of the outer world of society and the inner world of the psyche. But that sophisticated worldview does not contain the celestial and chthonic energies we need to appreciate the machine for what it is worth. To see technology in proper scale, we need cosmic consciousness. And that consciousness comes more often from meditation than from reading Marx or Freud. If we cannot humanize our technology with liberal humanism, we can with animism. And that is the importance to the contemporary world of animistic communities like Findhorn. If we can converse with plants, hear the spirits of wind and water, and listen to the molecular chorus singing the 99 names of God in the crystal lattice of the metal of our machines, then we can have the consciousness we need to live in a culture in harmony with the universe. Y'all are like brilliant people. I know this. This is like the most intimidating experience I've had speaking at a festival. And so I'm sure that many of you have something smart to say, and I'd love to hear it. Well, you know, there's, there's a, one of the things that I didn't get to in this talk, I'm glad you, you hit it, is that there's, there's really kind of like two different magical schools in most world cultures. There's the sort of masculine version and the feminine version. You know, there's... And this is nod to Martine Rothblatt and her gender-bending this here um you know male medical i mean male magical traditions tend to focus on the the magician of the tarot you know exerting one's own will you know and that's through alignment to a greater will you know uh even you know not my will but thine uh or you know do what thou wilt but the the thou in this case is capital t you know, it's aligning with the God-self. That's, that's how magic is actually executed. And if, if you're not operating from that, that holistic identity, then you're unintentionally creating the very thing that you are trying to eradicate. You know, that, that if you look at, for example, the work of techno-immortalists, like Ray Kurzweil you get into this weird situation where it is the faustian drive to live forever that is creating this accelerating technological evolution that is posing an existential threat to the entire infrastructure and is also in some sense accelerating our experience of time to the degree that more and more uh information more and more of the the subjective experience of the passage of time is is being C- compressed almost like uh, you know in- information entering the singularity you know it 's getting squeezed into into a point, and so we get it to this this place where the the attempt to live forever is actually creating a situation where even if we do master the human body and we find a way to make it live forever we 're going to be so busy like mutating ourselves on a daily basis, like we change clothes, that the issue of identity is is like moot. You know, like who's left of somebody like Ray Kurzweil or Jason Silva when we actually get there, you know, and and in order to get there, we it it seems pretty obvious that the the kind of the the, the very self that's asking who do I you know, how am I going to maintain control of the situation is basically forced to dance through the crowd because it's dancing through the crowd that allows the intelligence of the body to speak And allows you to actually get to the front of the state, you know, the the front row with the minimum of effort. You have to jiggle at the same rate as all of those other grains of sand on the speaker, you know, and it's like only through acknowledging that, which is actually the feminine magical tradition, which is much more aligned with expressing the will of the environment and, you know, through alignment with. Natural cycles, you know like the, the the lunar mysteries of menstruation and that kind of thing. Doug Rushkoff talks about this in, in uh, The book present shock he talks about how he was able to improve his Word count and actually write faster and more effortlessly by keeping track of the cycles of neurotransmitters in his own brain Associated with different phases of the, of the lunar cycle and He says that we can actually kind of sell this to business and say look your people are going to be better off if they're only doing this once one week a month and then the other three weeks they're working on something else, and one of those weeks is just rest and relaxation. That we are not machines, you know. So there's there's something in there, and I don't know if that gets it. Your I don't know if that helps. <laughs> but basically, it's like it, you know, uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj said, uh, it's not it's not your desires that are the problem. It's that your desires are too small. Well, you know. Um, the reason that I volunteered to do a live looping workshop tomorrow, and unfortunately we all can't be there. I wish they just put them back to back. Uh, is that this is a problem. You know, like this functions pretty well for when it's time to like listen to a you know, this is like a vestige of like the university here that I'm like sitting on the microphone and and, and y'all are not amplified in the recording, you know. Um I have this problem with venues where I run a a live looping uh, collaboration residency in Austin, Texas. And the goal is to get people involved. The goal is to have everyone recognize that they are participating in the, the body of this thing that is, you know, one organ is human tissue. Another organ is, is modular electronic devices. Another organ is the membrane of the room itself and the, the skeleton of the you know the the layout of that room and in this and in this particular case the you know it really the practical thing is is uh leveling that not you know in, in like an ideological way that says that this is this is wrong there's obviously a place for you know the way that attention focuses on people and shifts but like for example democratically rather than electing uh termed representatives we could delegate our votes to provisional bodies of of experts that convene to address a particular issue and are basically appointed by the the polis at large and then dissolve once they're you know the the issue has been addressed you know so that we're not dealing with the the impossible reconciliation of a very complex and specific set of global issues with the kind of, like, career political brinksmanship that seems to be involved in being a generalist political representative now. But there's, like, a new democracy. Are You Serious has has talked about this uh, extensively. Ken Goffman also has, have talked about, you know, like, what open-source democracy or Democracy 2.0 would look like. And, like, one of the things is, you know, that we would that you wouldn't even have to go to the voting office anymore, you know, you get your, like, uh, public ledger pin pin code, you know, like Ethereum or, you know, like a blockchain type thing, so that you can't fraud the vote, and you can use somebody else's phone, so you don't get into, like, the... you, you kind of m- minimize some of the, the issues of technological access, and then everyone can sort of pass their own rather than just blindly ass- asserting you know investing our own personal authority in somebody that cannot possibly address this we we say you know what actually this 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 person i think this person should be involved in the panel that comes together to address this particular issue and the swarm intelligence of the human species appoints the people that are actually most suited to it that's like a political example, but I mean, and, and even in a personal example, I think it's it's more about um, learning how. It, I mean, re, I mean, c- contemplation is probably there isn't there isn't a one way that this knowledge is going to express itself, and everyone here is is going to like percolate on this, and it's going to take root somewhere and grow, and the next time I speak to you, you're going to have some amazing way that that. That this this knowledge of the permeable, ever more permeable boundary between who you who you are and what you want to do and what your world is and what the world seems to want to do through you is uh, is doing being. You have to support the mouth. Yeah, you, you know the, this this whole thing about Occupy the 99% versus the one percent. Why do you suppose that movement didn't uh, like? Realize its intentions completely, you know, because you can't you can't cut the head off and keep the body alive, you know. You can circulate blood so that it's never the same blood in the head, which is not currently supported by systems like capital, you know, like lower taxes on capital gains than on labor, right? But uh, you want to you we, the the whole the the moral task, the psychological task in front of us is. Identify is learning to identify with the whole, being a 100%er. Because honestly, like, how are we going to do this if we're not recruiting the 1% of people that have access to 40% of the resources? Like, are we really going to pull this off with with like two of the four engines of this plane out? No, no. Like, we need everybody on board, and those people are just as lonely and miserable as everybody else. You know, so hug a billionaire that's my solution for you
0: you're listening to the psychedelic salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time hug a billionaire (laughs) well uh since i don't happen to know any billionaires i'm i'm just gonna have to pass on that i guess but if you do happen to know a billionaire then well that's probably pretty good advice I do think it's important, however, uh, to do what Michael was talking about earlier and humanize our technology. But I think that we have to step very carefully here, because it seems to me that sometimes we humanize our technology a little too much. In particular, I'm talking about the field called artificial intelligence. Just on the face of it, that phrase seems strange to me. What do they mean when they say that intelligence can be artificial? And have you noticed that some people are now capitalizing those two words, artificial intelligence, as if we're speaking about a living, breathing person? Oh, I know what they mean all right, but I think that they are seriously misleading people with that phrase because it's incomplete. What is being talked about here is actually artificial intelligence code. It's just code, my friends, computer code. And unless you're one of those mindless rubes who think that those morons on the U.S. Supreme Court are correct in giving full human protection to corporations, well, then you no doubt will never think of some computer code, no matter how sophisticated, as being anywhere close to equal in importance to the most lowly human being on the planet. I'll tell you when I'll buy into the concept of an AI being on the same level as a human... And that's when they can program a machine to have a full-on orgasm. One where the machine rocks and shakes and uh, then goes to sleep for an hour afterwards. (laughs) Until then, don't bother me with stories about machines waking up. And this is exactly a place where techno-shamans are needed. We need people who are aware of the metaphysical aspects of human life, but who are also deeply involved in technology and can hopefully prevent the masses from turning over their lives to a mindless, Borg-like existence. And, for what it's worth, I think that somehow our species will always come up with those important people, the techno-shamans. For example, during the main LSD phase of the 60s, there was a day when the five men most responsible for synthesizing and distributing LSD got together and discovered that all five of their fathers had worked on the Manhattan Project which developed the atomic bombs that the United States dropped on civilians in Japan in 1945. What are the odds of all five of those guys having dads in that program? What do you think? I'm not sure if that story made its way into one of my earlier podcasts, but it was told to me by my friend Nick Sands, who was one of the five people. And I think it made it into one of the podcasts with Nick. Now, back in the year 2000, a book was published that discussed ways in which the Internet acted like a psychedelic drug, something techno-shamans know quite well. I'd like to read a couple of short passages from that book right now. And I quote, The day will also come when the expanded sense of awareness shamans and psychonauts seek in in Entheospace will be more widely experienced, for people will be using the portal of deep cyberspace, cyberdelic space, to launch their minds into the unlimited realm of entheospace where Gaian consciousness exists. As more and more minds constantly jump in and out of entheospace, the possibility arises for order to spring from this chaos of mind. And it is this new order I see as the awakening of the newosphere. It is anyone's guess as to what form this new order will take, it might become manifest in a kind of super psychic awareness we all share, in essence a true global consciousness. Should ever such a moment occur, it would be fair to say that that moment is also when the evolution of global consciousness actually begins. It does not matter that many people may hold different views, for ultimately the future we create will be a synthesis of many different points of view. What does matter is the part we each play in shaping the immediate future. For we are not just in a period of rapid change, we are in a period of rapid evolution. Cyberspace has revealed itself to be a great attractor, drawing our minds together into a cocoon of intelligence, knowledge, and light-filled fibers encasing the earth. Perhaps in the not-too-distant future, the newosphere will shed its chrysalis, spread its beautiful wings, and take its proper place in the dance of the cosmos. With all of the commercial excitement caused by this new technology, we sometimes overlook the fact that a powerful new means of interhuman communication is evolving at an incredibly rapid pace. Like the clatter of souvenir vendors outside our historic cathedrals, the clatter of e-commerce can draw your attention away from the spirit-filled space you are about to enter. A deep layer of spirit is building within the Internet, Consciousness itself has taken hold and is beginning to expand inside of this great cathedral that is part human and part machine. Before our very eyes, the newosphere is taking root in the mechanical infrastructure we call the Internet. Which means, in the final analysis, that you are the spirit of the Internet. For the spirit of the Internet is the spirit of humanity. The spirit of the Internet is your spirit. It's my spirit. It is human spirit in all its forms. End quote. As you just guessed, that book is titled The Spirit of the Internet, Speculations on the Evolution of Global Consciousness. And, uh, well, I'm the guy who wrote it. <laughs> it's available online for free in HTML format and uh, in Kindle format you can find it on Amazon for 99 cents. But if you want a paperback copy, and if you stop by my garage, well, I'd be happy to give you one of the uh, <laughs> one of the 200 or so copies that I've still got left. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.